Make your way. So our, uh, our mission team got back Friday night, um, and two of them actually showed up here today, um, and I sent them home, gave them permission to go home. Um, so there was four that went, Randy and Matt and uh, Tony and Aaron. Uh, they had a great time. I came back Friday night late. I think it's somewhere between 10 and midnight. I'm not exactly sure. Um, I think they had some intestinal difficulties that they brought back with them. Um, uh, plus the travel. Plus they were doing a lot of hard work. They were building a house for one of the widows or ladies in uh, Guatemala. So they're kind of worn out. Um, so when Tony and Aaron were here just a few minutes ago, um, they were like, well, where's Matt? Where's Randy? Didn't they show up? <laughs> and I said, no, they called in, said they weren't feeling well. Um, so I could see in Aaron's face, it was like, can I go home too? <laughs> so I said, yeah, you can go home. So we bless them, let them recover. God give them peace. Um, you know, so it's a good, it's a good thing. So you get me today. So go figure. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, let's open with prayer, and then we'll get going. Lord, thank you for this time to gather in your name, uh, to worship, to fellowship, just to read your word and learn more about how you want to bless us and how you want us to be a blessing to those around us, Lord. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us this morning uh, what you want us to take away from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, so Matt's been preaching in, out of Nehemiah the past couple weeks, and I've, I've really enjoyed the, his sermons. Um, Nehemiah is a great book in the Old Testament, and I wanted to kind of give you my thoughts. You know, part of, when, when you're a preacher listening to other people preach, I, I, at least I tend to sit there and say, well, I, would, I wouldn't preach it that way. I would <laughs> preach it this way, you know? Um, and then I take notes and I don't always share those with Matt or with David, uh, you know, when they're preaching. But um, so it's, I, it would be fascinating for, you know, the, the pastors that are here, the preachers, to take the same passage and to preach it one Sunday after next. You guys might get bored with that, but we, it would be interesting from our perspective because we read and see different things in the scripture. So maybe we'll do that sometime. So. In the book of Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, and I'm going to go through a summary because there's a couple of new faces, people who haven't been here over the last couple of weeks to hear. So the book of Nehemiah, uh, the, the nation of Israel has been conquered by Babylon uh, in 586 BC. And so Jerusalem was ransacked. The people were taken into exile. Um, the temple was destroyed and the walls that protected the city were burnt and knocked down, right? 586 B.C. Now, B.C. meaning before Christ, so you have to know, you know, you remember from history, the timeline counts down when it's B.C. So, Babylon destroys Jerusalem. About 47 years after that, Persia conquers Babylon. And so... With the Persian government coming in, uh, they begin to say to the uh, Jewish people, 
you can go back to Jerusalem. And so the first wave of exiles comes back to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. And within two years, they begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And you read about that in the book of Ezra. And so there's Ezra that's rebuilding the temple. There's Nehemiah who's rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, as they begin working on the temple, it takes 20 years for them to rebuild the temple. Yeah, so it's a big work. Now, part of that 20 years was 10 years when there was so much opposition to rebuilding the temple that they had to stop all the work, right? Because the people who had taken over and were living in the land because the Jews were exiled, other people had moved in and they had set up their own kind of system and they didn't want the Jews to return to the land. So, you know, they, as, as Ezra and his group were rebuilding the temple, um, they had to stop for 10 years, but then they got started again and finally completed it in 516 BC. That was 70 years after its destruction, the temple is rebuilt. Now, people are living there, the temple's working now, um, life goes on. About uh, 58 years after the temple is rebuilt, a second wave of exiles begins to return to Jerusalem. This is 128 years after the exile. And that was in 458 B.C. Now those people lived there for 13 years before Nehemiah gets the word that the walls are still broken down. The temple's been rebuilt, but the walls that protect the city are still in shambles. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. And so he begins to look for an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And so he leaves in 445 BC, 71 years after the temple is completed, they start to rebuild the walls. So you you get a, a sense of the time frame here that this isn't just one generation coming and saying, okay, let's get this work done. This work is being done over 140, 150 years, multiple generations come and go. So once Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the walls, they were rebuilt within four months. Yeah. Actually, that included the time he got there and started scoping things out. Once they started building, it was completed within 52 days. So a lot of good, a lot of good work there. And so the part I want to focus on today comes from Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles, this is kind of a weird passage to read. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll give you a sense of kind of what's going on here. It's one of those chapters that has list after list and person's name after person's name 
And if you try to read the whole thing, you fall asleep in the middle of it. But So we'll just do the first part before you actually fall asleep, and then we'll stop. When I see you nodding off, I'm going to stop reading. So Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of of the hundred, which they dedicated, as far as the tower of Hananel. And then the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built it next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. And next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. And the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to work under the supervisors. So... It kind of goes on like that throughout the full of, you know, section of chapter 3. And, and, and I would encourage you to read it, um, especially if you're having trouble falling asleep at night. Because um, it might be helpful to you. But, but there's some very interesting things in this chapter as well. Um, so, so talking about the timeline and what lessons we can, can learn out of that. So the, the first exiles had been back for 94 years and they've done their part rebuilding the temple, but they didn't rebuild the wall around the city. Now, a wall around a city in those days is very important. It's your, it, it's your protection. It's your security, right? It's the way you keep invaders when you're sleeping at night from coming in to the town and ransacking it. Uh, it controlled the flow of commerce in and out. So you really don't have a city until you have a, a wall around it that protects it in, in this, this day and age. So the exiles have come back. They built the temple, but then after that, they stopped. They were happy with the situation, even though it wasn't completely done. And then the second wave came back, and even them for 13 years, they didn't do anything. And so I think sometimes we see that we think, well, we've done our part. You know, that first generation that came through and they rebuilt the temple, that was a great work. And so they can say, we've done our part, we're done, you guys do the rest. But then people sometimes move in to the work that other people have done and and the other people are, you know, they're like, well, we'll just fit in with those who are here. They've done their part, they're not really worried about the walls, so we're not going to worry about the walls either. And so they do what the people that their neighbors are doing and they just put up with it. Some people might have said, well, this generation, this mess was made by the previous generation. Why should we be responsible for cleaning up their mess? We didn't make it. But the truth is, if you want the mess that you're living in to get better, you've got to do something about it. Just because somebody else made the mess doesn't mean they're going to come and clean it up. If you want your life to be better, do something. And sometimes we get so used used to the broken down walls around us, we don't see them anymore, right? I mean, we just step over the rubble and we keep going. And we don't realize 
hey, there's a wall there that could be benefiting to me. But one of the things that when Nehemiah came, he saw that there was more that needed to be done, right? His heart was broken because the walls around the city were broken. And he knew what that meant for the people living there. He knew what that meant for God's promise to make Jerusalem a blessing to the nations. That Jerusalem could not fulfill its duty and responsibility of being the chosen people of God to reveal the goodness of God to the world if their walls were broken down. And so it wasn't just, hey, you need to paint your house or hey, you've got, you need to fill in the, the hole in your driveway. This was something about we can't do what God has called us to do. And then, and then there's the part of it that, well, the walls are secular, right? I mean, the temple was sacred. You got to come back and build the sacredness of the Jerusalem. But the walls, well, they just protect commerce. They protect, you know, it's non-sacred stuff. But God sees them both equally. The sacred and the secular is part of what God's plan is for the world. But it's a pretty big job to do, right? As they look at how long was the wall around Jerusalem at that time and and trying to dig up, you know, because there was so much history lived in that area, there are civilizations built on top of civilizations built on top of civilizations built on top of civilizations. And so as they go back and dig down through the layers of where people were building on top of buildings, it's hard somewhat to know what are the, which wall are we looking at? Is this the wall from the Maccabees? Is this the wall from uh, Ezra's day? Is this the wall from Solomon's day? But the best they can figure, the wall that they were working on was between 2.5 miles and 4.5 miles. So it was a pretty big length that they were trying to build. And when they would build this, it would be, you know, several feet wide so that people could walk along the top of the wall to keep lookout. It was built high enough so that it wasn't easy just for somebody to scale and and jump over. So we're talking about a pretty big piece of work. There were also 10 gates along the wall and six towers that they needed to rebuild. One of the things that Nehemiah did as he came and and began to organize the people is that he broke the wall down, the the work that needed to be done into different segments. One of the interesting things, if you read through chapter three, is that there's 41 different work crews in chapter three, that they took a different part of the wall. And so that's an important lesson that we have to learn when we're looking at our own lives and say, okay, God, this is just, I've got a lot I need to repair in my life. You break it down into smaller pieces, right? You don't have to build 4.5 miles of wall in one day. And so the way Nehemiah organized this often is that he, he had people repair the wall that was right next to their house. And so you see that kind of printed, you know, through, throughout here, 
Um, I can look at verse 23. It says, Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, and son of Ananiah made repairs beside his house. And so you can see this, this pattern all through chapter 3 that people were making repairs right next to their house. And there's several things that that does, right? One, they don't have to spend a lot of time traveling across town to get to the work that they need to do. It, it's efficient. But also, um, when, when you're repairing the wall right in front of your house, you can go out and say, I did that. That's a sense of pride there and ownership. I, I built that wall, you know. A third thing that we see in that is it benefits your family, right? If part of the purpose of a wall is that it protects your family from invaders coming in overnight, you have a vested interest in making that wall function, fulfill its purpose, because it's protecting you as you sleep. And so there's a lot of wisdom that Nehemiah was using in the midst of his plan to get the wall rebuilt. Now, despite that there were 41 teams building this wall, the work was coordinated. And as you read through chapter 3, you'll, you'll notice time and time again the phrase, um, and so-and-so built the adjoining section, or so-and-so built next to the one that built before that. And so despite there being the, breaking the problem down into parts, there was this coordinated effort that everybody was working together. And we have to make sure that, you know, I don't build the wall to here, but then you're going to start your wall over here. Because if there's a gap in the wall, then it's no wall at all anymore. And then part of this was learning a new skill. Everybody who built the wall wasn't wall builders. They weren't masons. They weren't bricklayers. In fact, if you read through... Uh, chapter 3, here's a list of, of the people who built the walls or the occupations they had. Priests and Levites, they weren't wall builders. Goldsmiths and perfume makers, what did they know about working with brick? Rulers and residents, sons and daughters. One section Verse 12, Shalom, son of Halosheth, ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. I don't think his daughters knew how to lay brick. But they learned. They did something. So, so part of the practicalness of dealing with the broken down walls in your life is that sometimes you're going to have to learn some new skills. You might say, I'm a goldsmith or I'm a perfume maker. I don't know how to do that. But when God calls us, he'll equip us. And then the idea that, you know, you start with what's right in front of you. You know, Nehemiah 3.18, the priests did what was in front of them in front of their houses. So, 
you know, Nehemiah has a plan about what's going on here. And so you begin to think about this and say, okay, how would you apply this to your life? What are the broken down areas in your life that you've gotten used to, you've learned to live with, maybe you don't even see them anymore? Maybe it's not you personally, maybe it's in your family, maybe it's the next generation. Maybe it's the result of what a previous generation did or the generation before that did. And it's like, this is their mess, I'm just trying to deal with it. Ask God what it is that he wants you to do in your life. How could you break that job down into smaller projects? How could you take that and say, okay, God, I can't build this 4.5 mile wall, but what can I do tomorrow that'll put a rock upon rock and stone upon stone and will begin the process of healing, of restoration, of forgiveness in your life? What skills do you need to break down, to, to, to learn to get the job done? The many things that we see, I mean, you can say, this person really hurt me. I don't know how to forgive them. But God knows how to forgive. He knows how to take you through those steps. Or you can say, God, I, I, don't, I don't know how to, to, to be a good spouse. I, 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 the, the, my spouse just drives me crazy and we just don't communicate well. But God can show you how to communicate. Or it's with your parents and saying, I mean, being a parent and having little kids and saying, Lord, these little kids are just driving me bonkers. I had my grandsons over the other day. Oh, Lord, have mercy. And I, and I prayed that prayer. It was like, okay, God. So my wife and, and my daughter, they were off at a women's thing. No, they were having fun. The good, well-deserved rest. And I had the, her, the two boys, they're four and two, uh, for several hours. Um, I signed up, I think, for three and lasted longer than that. That's okay. But, but I, did, I did pray that prayer. I said, Lord, I am not equipped to handle two kids for three hours. I did that very poorly when I was a dad to my kids. I'm a granddad now. But God said, okay, I'll show you how to do this. And so, you know, I, I, I started praying about it and say, okay, God, what do we do here? And it was like, well, their attention span is only 15 to 20 minutes, right? So what are things that they enjoy doing that will keep them focused for 15, 20 minutes at a time, and then you switch to a new activity that will keep them interested again, right? I said, okay, I think we can do that. So I sat down, I started writing out a list. Okay, we're gonna color for 15 minutes. Uh, Then we're going to play with blocks for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. If, If they're engaged in the process, don't move on to the next one, right? Yeah, so as long as they're engaged, keep up with that activity because then you can start the next. So we have 
block time, color time, outdoor time. We did a scavenger hunt outdoors, you know. Can you find a leaf? Well, there's one right there on the ground. So I know I, I got to make this a little harder. Can you make a, find a yellow leaf? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, can you find a red rock? Okay, we'll find a red rock. And so we, you know, you spend that time. And it was amazing. God had mercy and, and grace and taught me how to keep the kids focused and moving forward for the time that I was babysitting them. Not my skill, but God can teach you how to do things. What's the next thing in your life that God wants you to work on? You know, we, we get to the age where we're an adult. We've graduated from high school. Maybe we've gone on to college, but we probably have gotten a job. We're paying the bills, and we think, whew, I've arrived. I just need to keep, you know, things level for the next 40 years, and then maybe I can retire, and, you know, and I don't need to grow anymore. But God is always inviting us deeper, you know? We start to put our toes in the water, and then God says, all right, come out to your ankles. And then when we're out to our ankles, God says, come out to your knees. And we can say, no, God, I'm going to stay here just with my knees in the water. He says, but I've got great things I want to show you that are just a little bit further out. So you say, okay, God, I'll come out to my waist. And God said, that's great. Come out a little further. And we get out, and then the water starts coming up to our head, and we're like, God, this is getting kind of scary. I think I'll just stay here, or maybe I'll take a step back. But God says, if you'll put your head under the water, I'll start to show you where those fish swim around the reef and all these amazing things, if you'll trust me. And so you have a decision in life. Where do you want to start? Where do you want to stop along the journey with Jesus? Are you comfortable where you are or are you willing to keep going? Because I guarantee you he has more for you than what you can ask and imagine if you're willing to keep going. You know, and the other part of this is what can you do that will help you see immediate benefit. Now, one of the things that Nehemiah built into this strategy was people saw the benefit of it, right? They had a wall that was going to protect them and their family, their wives, their sons, their daughters. And so this wasn't just an altruistic kind of situation where, well, you're going to benefit the community, but there's no good in it for you. There's good in it for you as well. You are helping the community, but, but there's good in it for you. The Lord wants you to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And so we can take the word of the Lord and begin to apply it in our lives. And say, okay, Lord, just like Nehemiah was helping the community back then restore itself and become the community that you had for it to be, 
you can take these lessons and apply them into your life as well. But what I want us to consider about this is how to apply it to our church. And so we've been talking about this and praying about this for a while, and by that I mean the elders and the pastors. What are the broken down walls in our church? And I think as I look around, I would say the broken down walls are the empty pews. So look around. We see empty pews, empty pews, empty pews. On Sunday, we run about 80 to 90 in attendance. Our capacity here, I think, is 272. Now, there's no shame. There's no accusation in this. It's just recognition. The walls are broken down. We want to repair the walls. The pews are empty. We want to fill the pews. That's the word that Randy, one of our elders, was praying, and he felt like the Lord said to him, fill the pews. And so as we talked about that and began to pray about that, and saying, okay, Lord, what's the plan? How do we go about doing this? You know, and it's, I think the similarities are really striking to me that as a church, um, we have had our time of exile, right? We were here... I don't know how many years ago it was when we were in the building in Grandview, off Grandview Road. Anybody remember? That's 15 years ago? Something like that. Almost, almost 20, yeah. So we went into exile, in, I, I say it, exile on Warnell. We went into a building on Warnell and then went into exile further on 99th and Holmes, you know. <laughs> Preach it there, Dennis. I've gone from preaching to meddling, right? As they would say. When I was in the first church I pastored, that's what they said to me after one sermon. He said, you went from preaching to meddling today. That didn't go well. But, but we had our time of exile, right? And then a couple years ago, the Lord brought us back here to Grandview, to this building. And, and we felt a sense of home and renewal and, and I think we, as a generation in this church, God has really moved among us, and I think we have rebuilt the temple. You know? There's a sense of God's presence here, of worship, of life. I look around me, and I see a fellowship of people who love one another, who care for one another. And so I think we have rebuilt the temple, but the walls are still broken down. The pews need to be filled. We've come a long way, but we have further to go. So I don't minimize the work that we've gone through up to this point. But God is calling us to step out deeper into the waters. You know, Jesus said in, in John ten sixteen, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, I have people I want to come to this church, but they're not here yet. I want you to go out and find them. I want you to invite them in. And so part of that, what Natalia was talking about earlier, is that we've initiated what 
is, it's a, a direct mailing, but it, it's a new movers program. So we get a mailing list of people who have moved into this area in the last month. And we send them a welcome to Grandview card. We'd like you to come see our church. And so that's an active thing that hopefully will bear fruit. I mean, we pray for that. So those seeds that go out, they will bring in. We've also uh, sponsored some T-shirts that they're going to be giving away at the Grandview High School for the basketball game. You know, where they throw the shirts up into the stands and stuff. That will have our logo and name and invite people to church. Just ways to reach out. But just like Nehemiah, was, it wasn't a work that Nehemiah could do on his own. It was a work that the people of the community needed to do. That we're asking you to be part of that work that God has called us to. About inviting people to our church. And so we have put a target date of October 29th as a Sunday where we're inviting, invite someone to church day, you know. Uh, in the old days, they would call this back to church day, Sunday, or invite a friend Sunday. But put that on your calendars, October 29th, we're asking you to invite someone to church so that we can fill these pews, so that we can see and fulfill the word of God that says to us, Fill the pews. Reach out to those around you. I have sheep that are not in this church, but I want to bring them in. Now, for some of us, that may be like, hey, that's fine. I'll do that. I know there are people in this church already who have, have invited several people um, and over the last couple months. They started coming here maybe a year ago, and they've already invited several people in. Some of, a, of you, even myself included, are like, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I can't take a, care of a two- and a four-year-old for three hours, right? But God can show you how to do that. God can make a way for you to reach out to people around you and say comfortably, hey, I'd like you to come to my church. If you're willing to be God's vessel... He can make it happen. And so all I'm asking you to do today is to begin praying about it, okay? I'm not asking you to put on the scuba gear and dive deep down 100 feet to the reef. I'm just asking you to step out to your ankles, okay? Now, over the coming weeks, I'm going to ask you to step out a little bit more, but we'll start there. You know, and sometimes the simplest thing can make the biggest change. Um, Heather shared with me this story that that she saw on Facebook uh, the other day that I thought was just phenomenal about this. And uh, it's about a a story that uh, Dr. Frank Mayfield, who was touring the Tewksbury Institute, tells. He accidentally collided with an elderly floor maid while he was walking around. And to cover the awkward moment, the the doctor started asking questions. How long have you worked here? And the lady replied, I've worked here almost since the place opened. Well, what can you tell me about the history of this place? He asked. Well, I don't think I can tell you anything, but I could show you something. 
And with that, she took his hand and led him down to the basement under the oldest section of the building. And she pointed to one of what looked like small prison cells in the basement. Their iron bars rusted with age and said, that's the cage where they used to keep Annie Sullivan. Who's Annie? The doctor asked. Annie was a young girl who was brought in here because she was incorrigible. Nobody could do anything with her. She'd bite and scream, throw her food at people. The doctors and the nurses couldn't even examine her or anything. I'd see them trying with her spitting and, and, and crying and yelling. I was only a few years younger than her, and I used to think, I sure wish I could do something. I sure wish, I sure would hate to be locked up in a cage like that. I wanted to help her, but I didn't have any idea what I could do. I mean, if the doctors and nurses couldn't help her, what could someone like me do? I didn't know what else to do, so I baked her some brownies one night after work. The next day I brought them in. I walked carefully to her cage and said, Annie, I, I baked these brownies just for you. I put them right, I'll put them right here in front on the floor and you can come get them if you want. She said, and then I got out of there just as fast as I could because I was afraid she might throw them at me. But she didn't. She actually took the brownies and ate them. And after that, she was just a little bit nicer. And sometimes I'd talk to her. Once I even got her laughing. Well, one of the nurses noticed this and she told the doctor and they asked me if I'd help them with Annie. I said I, I would if I could. And so that's how it came about that every time they wanted to see Annie or examine her, I went into the cage first and explained and calmed her down and held her hand. And this is how they discovered that Annie was almost blind. Annie came back, no, after they had been working with her for about a year, it was a tough sledding, a tough going for Annie. The Perkins Institute for the Blind opened its doors and they were able to help her and, and she went on to study and became a teacher herself. Annie came back to Tewksbury Institute to visit once she had become a teacher and to see what she could do to help out. At first, the director didn't say anything and, and then he thought about a letter he had just received from a man who had written about his daughter. She was absolutely unruly, almost like an animal. She was blind and deaf as well as deranged. He was at his wit's end, but he didn't want to put her in an asylum. And so he wrote to the institute to ask, if they knew of anyone who could come to his house and work with his daughter. And this is how Annie Sullivan became the lifelong companion of Helen Keller. When Helen Keller received the Nobel Prize, she was asked, who had the greatest impact on your life? And she said, Annie Sullivan. But Annie Sullivan said, no, Helen, the woman who had the greatest influence on both of our lives 
was a floor maid at the Institute who gave me a plate of brownies. It's amazing, isn't it? What can a plate of brownies do? You might not be able to build a wall, but if you can bake a plate of brownies to take them to a friend and just say, I want you to know about the love of God. It can open a door. It can start a new journey that may lead to some things that are wonderful that you can't even ask and imagine. But God has it. If you're a willing vessel, you don't need to be a doctor or a nurse. You can be a floor maid. But God can use your kindness to make it happen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is active in our lives on a day-to-day basis. Moment by moment, you are there caring for us, even if we don't realize it. You are here, whether it's a big thing like building the walls around a city, whether it's helping a church fulfill its mission and calling, or if it's in our own individual lives that that we don't think we can get past the obstacles in our way, that we can't get past the damage that has been done or the things that are just broken about us. But you can. You are the God who works at all those levels. Lord, we don't even need to know how to build walls. We can be goldsmiths or perfume makers. But you can make it happen. All you need is someone who is willing. And Lord, we ask you today, we're willing. And maybe if we're not willing, Lord, we're we're willing to be willing. Because we're here today because we know you are God. We know that your son Jesus has given us the words of life. We may not fully understand them, but we're here because we want more of what you've offered us, the love, the forgiveness, the grace, the mercy. And so, Father, we come and we receive from you that we may take the blessing that you give us and go out and be a blessing to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go in peace. Enjoy the goodness of God.